you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world raise $130 million in growth funding and can help you fast track product market fit and where relevant, the launch of your token economy. Great. So today I'm really happy to welcome on Sam Williams, CEO and co-founder of Arweave. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So really excited to talk to you today. You've come up in conversation a number of times, uh, notwithstanding uh, a project in our current accelerated cohort called Koi, or at least, I mean, they're changing their name around a little bit. I think they're called Koi now. Um, but I would describe Arweave as a way to store data documents and applications forever. That's the promise. Um, Arweave makes information permanence sustainable. Um, and I presume that's both kind of technically and the economics that go behind that. And to just kind of speak to some of the, the kind of copy that you've got littered around things like websites and various documents, Arweave is a new type of storage that backs data with sustainable and perpetual endowments, allowing users and developers to truly store data forever. Um, as a collectively owned hardware drive that never forgets, Arweave allows us to remember and preserve valuable information, apps, and history indefinitely. Um, so as I said, a uh, number of reasons why I've got in the show. You're coming up in conversation a lot. I believe you're getting great traction. It'd be great to go into how you quantify that, the numbers. I believe it's things like apps, objects, transactions. But this kind of concept of the permaweb, I asked you off air if you came up with that because when, the first time I saw it, it felt familiar. So I felt that I'd heard that before, which is why I kind of doubted myself that maybe you came up with it. Um, so it sounds familiar and it feels obvious. Like it's very clear immediately when you say it, what you're saying, which is like the holy grail in startup world. Like if we could come up with something like that for every startup that goes through our accelerator, I'd be a very, very, very rich man. So um, how did you arrive at that, that concept and that term? Well, we arrived there pretty much instantly when we got started. So, so when we got started about four years ago, um, we had this idea. I mean, the way the way the world was turning was, you could say that the risk of authoritarian regimes emerging in the West was was growing, and you know, it's already pretty, um, yeah, pretty strong representation in in many other areas of the world. But we felt that we couldn't necessarily solve those problems. But what we could at least do is try and uh, put some of our technical, what would you say, resources and know-how, yeah, just avoiding these things showing up in the West as well, essentially, was the, was the principle. And, and we figured that, you know, in order for authoritarian regimes to work, they have to have strong control over information. And the reason for that is very simple. Like, even in uh, communist China, for example, um, only 3% of the country are party members. Like there's always an enormous um, outweighing of normal civilians versus the, the people enforcing um, the authoritarian rule. And, and the only way that you can make that system work is by controlling the information space. So controlling what people think in order to control how they act. Um, and so we thought that one obvious thing that we could do is make it so that information is freer and it's harder to censor information um, sort of global level. And, and so we were thinking about this, I guess, 
just after Trump was elected in the US. <laughs> but for what it's worth, we, we saw dangers on all sides of the spectrum. We, we were yeah, not particularly driven by that event. I think we saw sort of wider trends. Um, yeah, we, we got started thinking, well, okay, let's at least make it so that you can build a permanent archive of newspaper articles. Like, so no one can censor these records of the past. And um, then we realized, okay, so blockchains are a great, uh, great tool for doing something like that. They, they essentially allow you to replicate data all over the world and come to consensus about what that data is, um, which is a good start. But of course, they don't have scalability and they don't have uh, strong economics to, to back that data storage, essentially. Like, you know, blockchains are just ever appended lists of information that no one has an incentive to store at some sense. So that's, you know, suboptimal. So I was doing a PhD and a couple of the, the early team members were as well uh, in areas close to distributed system design. Mine was a distributed operating system. And so we figured we could kind of like remix, if you will, a blockchain into something that was more scalable. And then of course we came up with the sort of mechanism design based on endowments um, that allows you to back that data storage permanently. And so essentially you're putting up enough of a uh, of capital at the beginning so that you can generate interest on it and then use the interest to pay for storage rather than the principal. Um, yeah, so, so once we got there, we were like, okay, cool. <laughs> this is our large immutable um, newspaper archive. But then <laughs> suddenly we realized, well, wait, <laughs> if it stores newspaper articles, why can't it store everything? And that's essentially where the PermaWeb came about. And that was, you know, just at the time we were writing our first white paper in mid-2017, we had this realization that if you just make the information stored in this system available in web browsers, now you just have a permanent sister network to the internet, uh, which, we, which we nearly called the PermaNet. But then we were like, well, no, actually, <laughs> it's not quite a network, really. It's, it's more the web of knowledge. So a permanent web of knowledge, what do you get? PermaWeb. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's just kind of been like a <laughs> crazy journey. Since and, there's, and there's lots within that that I, I want to unpack. And so basically this means no more 404s, no more stealth edits, uh, no more web apps at declining quality. And uh, and when you talk about this initially, I mean, it, and it's a very strong purpose, I think, you know, most people in the West would agree wherever you land on the political spectrum that um, that it's important um, but you know, there is very strong commercial argumentation behind this as well, right? This isn't just like a, it isn't just a public good. It is also makes, uh, has good business rationale behind it. And this is definitely what I, I want to unpack a little bit later. Um, so maybe we kind of just focus on some of the numbers. So as I could see it, you, you seem to measure success traction by apps, objects, transactions. I tried to figure out what the latest numbers were and I just gave up because it looks like you've got some really good growth happening. Could you give us the latest if, if you even know? Yeah, I, I think that the, um, the key thing for any base layer blockchain system should probably be ecosystem strength. Like that's what really matters. And in our week, we've seen just this unbelievable explosion over the last like six months or so now, maybe five months of people quitting their jobs to build startup communities on top of Arweave. Uh, and this was sort of heralded, if you will, by, by the birth of this thing we call profit-sharing communities. And they're essentially, if, you, if you're familiar with the idea of a decentralized autonomous organization, uh, you can kind of think of like a decentralized autonomous organization running a web application 
and then the profit of that web application being sent directly to its token holders is a basic principle. There's more to it than that. Um, but as soon as we got that going on top of the network, I mean, we <laughs> really what we did actually, there was no technical part of it, but we had this, this kind of community call where we were like, hey guys, we think you can build these kinds of things and here's how it would work and, and here's why it's you know, advantageous versus the current system of startups. And that was all it took, that kind of lit the fire. And now, you know, five, six months later, there's probably 35 of these things where people that just like quit their jobs, they work on it full time. Um, yeah, and they're building absolutely incredible things. And there's new ones every single day popping up now. Like it's, it's frankly getting hard to keep track of. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's very difficult to quantify the growth in that regard. I, I see it as like ecosystem strength. So if the core Arweave team were not around, what would happen is always the thing that kind of plays in my mind. Now we're just at this point where like, I have no doubt that if we weren't around, if like we were all on a plane somewhere and, and that plane crashed, <laughs> essentially nothing would change in the network. Like the, the thing is completely decentralized and the ecosystem sort of lives for itself, if that makes sense. And it grows for itself too. Like people come along, they build new stuff every day. And so the, the job has changed. Uh, my job has changed from like, what would you say, trying to um, muster stuff up from nothing trying to like, convince people to get on board and, and get excited about the thing and um, make stuff happen to really just like throwing fuel on the fire that is already growing uh, where I can see an opportunity to do so, which is just like immensely rewarding to watch, frankly. Yeah, and it is quite unique to being a Web3 founder, right? Especially if you're kind of at the protocol layer and you know the more lower you are down in the stack because um, on the one hand, you are initially a startup, and as you said, you know, you're, you're trying to do the impossible. Um, and then if you're successful, very quickly you become a steward. Um, and your, your, your role is to almost try to make yourself redundant. And that is especially important for you guys because you are promising forever, right? Um, that's, that's the promise. And, and um, at least not yet, um, it's unlikely that the team are going to be around forever. So um, that's, that's really interesting to kind of see. So... And when you're talking about, I guess it's apps or dApps as DAOs, that, that's also very interesting. I guess, you know, if you were outside of the Web3 space, you would compare that to what Tim Berners-Lee is trying to do with Solid and stuff. And it'd be interesting to see how you, because I, I didn't fully appreciate that about you guys, actually. I thought it was much more around the data um, and not so much the the app. So that that's something I want to kind of go into um, a little bit more. Just quickly before we do, um, just to kind of summarize your background, you alluded to the PhD and doing work in distributed systems. As I understand it, you spent a little bit of time in academia. Was it was it the University of Kent? You're an assistant lecturer there. Um, and what was that? That was focused in computer science, distributed systems, stuff like that? Yeah, so I built a distributed operating system where the idea was you should essentially be able to survive the failure of multiple pieces of hardware inside the machine and have the machine continue to compute stuff. Um, so you, cool. you can like take out the RAM of the machine while it's on and still have it compute useful stuff. Um, and so there's lots of complex, you say, uh, machine-specific tricks you can make or you can do to make that work essentially. And that was what I spent three years exploring. It was super interesting, but it wasn't very valuable to the world, I wouldn't say. It's kind of a curiosity. 
And sometimes people ask me, like, what do you even do with it? And I was like, well, <laughs> I guess it'd be really good if you put it on like space, space travel machines or like in, um, you know, distant polar um, weather stations, right? Like places where the machine must be on all the time and never fail. And if it fails, some human has got to go out there somehow and it's going to cost millions and potentially have that human like swimming across icy waters and so on, stuff we really want to avoid. Um, so, yeah, it just wasn't that, that useful to humanity, I would say. But related, right? I mean, quite related to, to what you're doing now. Right. It was, it was really about longevity of computing, you could call it. Yes. And, I, you know, that comes back to this point I mentioned earlier about, um, and I think I took this from somewhere on, on your website as well, but just as the first web connected people over vast distances, the permaweb connects people over extremely long periods of time, time kind of being that operative word. Um, so then you founded what looked like your first venture as a co-founder uh, in 2017 in parallel to Arweave, right, which was minimum spanning technologies. Could you tell us a little bit about that and... Oh, that's just the company that founded Arweave. Ah, got you. Okay, that makes sense. That's a kind of interesting and slightly uncomfortable thing about the job, right? Like you introduced me as a co-founder and CEO of Arweave, which I, I think it, you know, that's my fault. That's not, it's not yours. But I think um, it's just an uncomfortable title. I'm certainly not CEO of the... Uh, <laughs> of the Permaweb, yeah. This, the Permaweb doesn't have a CEO, yeah. Yeah, but but I am of the of the company that started Arweave. And that's, that's been a sort of interesting journey as well, because we, we obviously never set out to build a company. Um, but by practicality, you know, in the early stages of a network like this, it is sort of centralized on the, um, on the founding team. And so that's been an interesting journey that's led to recently this point where we realized that like most of our time and most of our attention is really just spent now investing in people in the ecosystem building on top of the permaweb, which is kind of the stack of protocols that's emerged um, around Arby. And so now, yeah, we're really just pivoting that, that starting organization to just be an investment vehicle, to just invest in the stuff the community is already doing, uh, which is really exciting, actually. And again, another unusual but common theme in Web3 is first you're a startup, then you're a student of a network, and then you're kind of like a VC or like a private equity. You know, you're you're using capital to um, create a center of gravity uh, around the protocol and, and the ecosystem. And so that it is quite interesting to watch founders shift between these 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 different roles. Some don't do it. You know, some kind of drop out at, at one point and, and don't feel that the next thing is a good fit for them. But it's going to be interesting to talk through with you. You know. Presumably, you are motivated throughout all three of those cycles. And, you know, you're talking about creating this, you had to create this vehicle. And, you know, one of those things is because you took in VC money and you, you had a lot of very big names, um, you know, give you that money, right? Um, I think you had Andreessen and, and several other very large reputable VCs. Was it Multicoin as well? Yeah, USV, um, 1KX, we actually worked with super closely from the beginning. Uh, people don't know their name so much, but I, uh, they definitely should, I would say, put it that way. And that's, you know, pretty impressive because, you know, you're a European project. They tend to get overlooked, certainly at the early stage, by um, USVC. But that aside, you know, you, you took in venture capital money. You managed to get them to buy into the mission, as I said, 
at first glance, it sounds like a public good like Wikipedia is, but actually, you know, clearly there is a very strong commercial argumentation as to why this is important. So I believe the PermaWeb offers things like low cost, zero maintenance, permanent hosting of web apps and web pages. Could you just talk us through the commercial argument for the PermaWeb? It's a difficult thing to quantify. Like, how big is the market for permanent storage? And, and I would argue that the market is probably close to the size of all publicly available information, something like that. When you make information available publicly, there's always the, the possibility that someone's going to make a copy. Um, so, so there's no chance of making it private again later. You know that when you publish something, it might well be, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see, uh, permanently available. It's sort of um, Schrodinger's availability, really, yeah, in this, in this environment. Like maybe it's around forever, maybe it's not. Most likely not, but but you you've sort of made that choice that it could be. So that's within the addressable information space. Um, and I think that really what people want to do when they make their information available on the web is just spread it as far and wide as they can. That is always the incentive. Like when I post something on Twitter, I want it to go as widely as it can. And and you can do that in multiple dimensions. One is space. That's kind of what the web does. And the other is time. That's what the perm web does. Um, so, so I think that it's very hard to calculate the size of the addressable market, but I think it's, <laughs> it, it reminds me of a, I think there's a, I'm not sure if I should say the name of a company, a large publicly now, now publicly listed startup um, in the US. <laughs> the, the founder on the board decks, there's a size like a slide that says, you know, how big is the total addressable market? Just big dot. <laughs> we might, my personal expectation is that if we can get, I think that we can replace the public web eventually. And if we do so. That's big. Yeah, that's pretty big. <laughs> yeah, I, I have 99.9 .9 or nine, I don't know how many nines percent of my personal wealth inside Arweave. And I, <laughs> let's just say I've never, <laughs> I've always known it's plenty big enough to, to if it succeeds, provide me with what I need in order to go pursue other interesting things in life. I've never <laughs> had the thought to quantify exactly how much. I don't think it's going to be relevant. It's so big that I, yeah, <laughs> I'm not concerned about that, if that makes sense. Yeah. But then, so let's say I am a corporation or a startup, and I'm thinking, let's say I'm not so philosophically or you know, motivated by the principle of a permaweb. I'm just looking at like the hard, you know, objective or, or logical argument as to why commercially I should build on the permaweb versus the web as it is today. Like what what would be the argumentation to convince somebody that, that didn't care about the principles of a permaweb, but really were just looking for a, you know, cost benefit or a business benefit? Oh, I, I think that most of those enterprises a good number of those enterprises will actually just be subsumed by enterprises on top of the perma web. And is so so maybe they don't care and maybe that's also okay. For example, if you if you have Facebook, the, the core issue with Facebook is trust. Right? When it started in 2004, 2005, it was this small startup, everyone trusted it, um, and they got along with it well, and there was massive growth of, of user numbers. But ultimately, at the time, no one knew what Facebook would become. And that's, that's the fundamental problem that we've seen play out. Facebook is a, is a centralized organization whose incentives are purely to make Facebook's balance sheet bigger. That is ultimately something that is against 
the desires of the user. And so the user is always in contention with the corporation in this model. A uh, PermaWeb-based profit-sharing community, Facebook, doesn't have that situation at all. For a start, when they publish a new version of their application, it lives on the PermaWeb. So if you don't like newer versions of the application, you can just use the old one. And that changes the incentives and the relationship between the developer and the users. Now, if the developer wants the users to adopt a new version of the application, the new version of the application has to be strictly better than the old version, which is a fundamentally different power relationship. Further, um, when you use a PermaWeb application, most likely you're going to earn ownership of the application itself for being an early adopter. And that means that you get power and voting say, um, which again, changes the relationship. So I think that ultimately web applications run by decentralized autonomous organizations or even trust minimized protocols will just eventually replace a large number of these institutions entirely. And, and the reasons for that is just as the user, I, I think it's going to be complicated to explain for the first few years, but once the meme is out there, once people start getting it, it it'll just be impossible for a Web2 startup to compete because they're objectively worse from the user's perspective. Yeah, I mean, we just released a updated part of our thesis called the Open Metaverse OS. And, you know, a big part of it is looking at the direction of travel away from platforms and towards sovereignty of uh, data or identity data and wealth, digital wealth um, in, in all, all of its forms. And the benefits that come from inherently more open systems um, versus kind of closed proprietary platforms. So obviously I personally uh, subscribe to that uh, direction of travel, but it's interesting to hear that, you know, your focus is on enabling the the startups of the future, Web3 native businesses, if, you, if, you, if you'd even call it that, right? And almost a new form of uh, corporate structure um, rather than trying to onboard the web as it is today. Right. I mean, it'll probably be like a, if you can't beat them, join them thing eventually. But, but to be honest, I think the, the incentives are set up in such a fundamentally broken way for most of these Web2 institutions that they will try and join and it'll be too late and uh, it won't make much of a difference. Most probably. Yes. Because yeah. ultimately, like the, the incentives of the Facebook organization will never be anything other than to make Facebook shareholders richer. And for what it's worth, obviously, they don't issue any dividends. So by just making shareholders richer, they just mean growing the balance sheet of the organization. Uh, and that's fundamentally at odds with the consumers. And there's no way of like disentangling that situation, essentially. Um, I think it'll be a little bit like what you're seeing with central bank digital currencies. <laughs> this idea that like, well, they see that digital currencies are coming and, that <laughs> and they, they owned the old thing. And now they kind of have to take part, but they don't really make any sense. Um, yeah, I think it will be similar to that. And, and my personal expectation is those will, like the over a long enough timeline, fail or at least diminish in importance relative to you know, truly decentralized, protocolized digital currencies. I think the same will happen with uh, web businesses, essentially, web companies, really. Yeah, and I think, you know, ultimately, 
is built on a different paradigm, right? One previously that was oriented towards shareholder supremacy, as you say, and, and this moves towards user centricity. Um, so, um, so I, I want to get into. You, you mentioned earlier there is uh, are we've the company and the activities that that does versus the PermaWeb, which is a stack of protocols. Um, but before I before I do, I just want to throw out some kind of counterpoints, or at least challenges, right, which I'm sure you've heard before, and I think it would be good to address for the audience, which are, um, you know, for example, in a European context, you're based in Berlin, you're a Brit, you know, the EU is trying to grasp or wrestle with this idea of being able to, um, the right to be forgotten and, you know, actually stopping permanence. How do you think about that? How do you approach it? Um, does it matter? Yeah. Uh, well, it's sort of a funny one. I mean, Arweave is actually better than most blockchain systems in this regard, because the way that it works is that it's a ledger that stores huge amounts of information. And that means that you have to be able to not store certain parts of that information data set um, in order to take part in the mining. Like no single person will be able to store the whole thing eventually. So we have this mining structure that basically says, okay, well, the more you store, the more you earn, approximately. And, and no, um, yeah, no data is assigned to a miner to store. And the reason for that is that miners are impermanent, right? So you can't, you can't say, you know, um, Jamie has to be online for the next 10 years to serve this piece of data or 100 years or, or whatever it happens to be. Like you could, you know, plausibly piece things up, but, but it's not going to, it's not going to work uh, effectively. So what you do instead is you just incentivize everyone to store everything and critically to store stuff that is understored by others. Um, and then over time, there's sort of this uh, sort of auto-leveling effect you get, basically, as a result of the incentives. So that means that it's a blockchain which can have holes in it from the, from the personal perspective of a miner. Like, there can be parts of the blockchain that they don't know about. Um, and... <laughs> This is obviously stands in, in contrast to a normal blockchain where you really have to store the entire thing. And so in terms of GDPR, if you're within the European Union and, and someone sends a GDPR request that says they want you to take down a piece of data, you can absolutely do so. Um, and the one caveat with the permanence of the data storage on Arweave is in, if every single person in the world, every single participant in the network won't store your data, then your data won't be stored. Like there's a sort of reasonableness that you know if absolutely everyone in the network thinks your data shouldn't be stored then it shouldn't be stored um yeah so so in terms of gdpr this this plays into things quite nicely um much much better than most blockchain systems and on top of that the uh the european union are looking at uh, modifications to gdpr to make it more sort of would you say uh blockchain friendly because there is this problem that like, these are just immutable ledgers of stuff is it, it yeah. doesn't really work with the way that they've um yeah the way that they've formulated things yeah and you know a lot of all of that stuff predated blockchain and you know in fairness you know Pateris Silgavis is a good friend of mine and outliers he's been on the podcast before you know people that inform policy around things like GDPR and and he said very openly look you know this is they are adaptive they're not supposed to be kind of black and white and permanent themselves um you know they are supposed to evolve and reflect um 
the market and to try to inform dynamics. So, um, as you say, I know that they are looking to account for that. And it's open to interpretation a little bit more than most people um, would think. Um, so the, the other kind of big challenge, which is, I guess, more more philosophical, is um, as a Brit, I don't know how long you've been in Germany and whether you still kind of keep, keep up to date with um, UK kind of media. And this is probably a reference lost on on almost all the listeners, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's such a good one. Somebody shared it. Um, Lawrence Lundy, who's a partner of Outlier, who's kind of very deeply into the space, and often has a counter-narrative to say what I think on, on many of these things. But he, he shared a sketch by Mitchell and Webb, and it's got this scene where there are some Nazis in the bunker, and one of them turns around to the other one and goes, do you think we're the bad guys? Um, and... Um, and he was showing that in the context of Web3, you know, as somebody himself who had been investing and advocating for Web3 and this idea that we're building censorship resistant media and technology. And, you know, as governments are deplatforming people, you mentioned Trump earlier, you know, alt-right in the US are being um, progressively deplatformed and they're turning to things like Discord to communicate. You know, how do you reconcile this idea that there is content that as long as there's a subset of the network that believe it should exist and should be permanent, can't be removed from the internet or the web, sorry. So there's different types of content here. There's a small amount of content that basically everyone in the world, like, you know, indecent imagery that everyone in the world basically agrees that shouldn't be stored. And fortunately, we have a legal system that makes it illegal to store that stuff. And every miner is obviously... Um, you say, under the force of the local jurisdiction. And so that there's a good subset of content that I think we can all be happy uh, is legal to store inside the Arweave network by default because it's illegal everywhere in the world. So, so that's good. Um, on top of that, there's more political content. And I personally have pretty centrist political beliefs. I'm highly anti-authoritarian, but, uh, but I don't lean very much on the left and right spectrum. Um, what ultimately I think that in order for us to have functioning democracies, we need to have a way for people to speak to each other. And it's at our own peril that we cut off one side of the argument from, from happening because it, it's not like it stops people thinking these things. It actually just pushes them further and further underground. When we do that, like, they can't be reached. And it's extremely dangerous for a democracy. These people still vote. Number one, so so it's not like you can stop them um, having representation, um, and they they also they just will become stronger and stronger in their beliefs the more they are persecuted. And so, what it comes back to for me is, I, I forget who said this originally, but it's true: the speech that needs to be protected is never the popular speech of the time. So, if we believe in free speech, we should stand for protecting speech always. Um, and I think that in order to have functioning societies, we, we can, we're going to need that. Uh, if we lose it, things will likely go very badly wrong. It's not just another kind of arbitrary value. It's, it's part of the system of democracy. If you don't allow them, they won't debate. And if they don't debate, they won't come to consensus. It, it's very simple. I think it's 
it's very dangerous for us to be moving against it. Um, so that's how I think about it personally. And it's, it's not that I support all of these different types of speech that they have. I certainly don't. I think people sure. have a lot of abhorrent things to say to one another, a lot of untrue things to say too. Um, but unfortunately, I'm, I'm aware of the reality that if we don't allow them to voice those concerns, we won't be able to reach them and tell them why they're wrong. And if we can't do that, they'll vote in ways that are, um, they'll vote without having the consensus step, if that makes sense. Yeah. So no debate, no consensus means that they just vote based on these principles that the rest of us think are incorrect. And so just a point of clarification, you said on content that is, let's just say illegal, we don't need to go into the detail of it, but just like illegal content, um, that a, a, a minor would not engage with that kind of content because they can be identified in the network or kicked out of the network or... Well, they can be identified by their local you know, law enforcement. I mean, they, they have an IP address. It is exposing what they store locally. If they're storing stuff that is illegal, they will eventually be, you know... Um, <laughs> that will eventually uh, come back to, to bite them. And so there's a very strong disincentive from, from taking part in that. And the tools are all in the network or rather in the node implementations themselves the people to analyze the data they're storing locally. And so they are responsible for it, but they are also enabled to, to check the data they're storing. But this sort of has elegant, um, what would you say? Elegant dynamics to it. So there's data that's, that absolutely no one in the world uh, wants to store. Well, not necessarily nobody in the world wants to store, but the governments of the world have all decided people should not store. Um, and then there's information that, for example, the Chinese government, doesn't want people to store. And because, okay, so fine, the miners in China can't store that information, but that's okay because the miners in the West can. And so there's this sort of global consensus that happens on the availability of the information stored in the network. Great. And, you know, I, I kind of suspected all, all those things to be true, right? But I know that these are things that you kind of have to address at the top end. Otherwise, people, people, people just make assumptions. Um, so let's get into as we said, this difference between Arweave and the PermaWed stack. Could you kind of break break it down for us in terms of it, its constituent parts and how they interplay? Yeah, for sure. So um, the, the Arweave protocol is basically just this sort of technical component and an economic component. So the endowment on the economic side that backs the data storage and um, a scalable sort of mining system, which incentivizes people to store data and critically incentivizes them to store less replicated data slightly more, um, so that there's an auto-leveling effect of data storage across the network. So that's what the Arweave protocol core does. And then on top of this, we have, um, yeah, a stack of protocols that, that really um, create the permal web. So the first one, I suppose, is gateways. This is making all of the information that's available inside the Arweave network available in people's browsers. So you just point your browser to a gateway stroke, a transaction ID, and it renders like a web page or a web application, just a normal one. Um, then on top of this, or maybe even adjacent to this, you could say, is the SmartWeave protocol. So this is essentially a, a mechanism for doing smart contracts where the process of coming to consensus is lazy. So what you do is you write the contract source into the network, and then you write every individual interaction with that contract um, into the network as well. 
And then users, when they want to work out what the current state is, they just run through execution of those interactions in order to get to the state at the, at the head. You can also have caching servers and this kind of thing that make that, that process faster. But what that does is, is actually really interesting. So it means that the smart contract security model is now that the developer has a relationship with the users directly. Kind of like when you download an application and you run it on Windows or Mac, you have a relationship directly with the developer. This is, stands in like pretty stark contrast to Ethereum or basically every other smart contract system where the relationship is that the developer has a, um, has a relationship with the users via validators. So the validators have to run all of the code created by the developer. That means that that code has to be like much, much safer because the validators really don't want, you know, frankly, weird things to happen on their computer. Um, and, and that limits the kinds of things you can do very dramatically. So this means that you can basically write uh, your smart contracts in JavaScript or really any programming language you like, because what that programming environment does is a relationship between the user and the developer. If the user doesn't want to take part, though they don't trust the developer, then they simply don't run the code. Uh, so that's quite powerful. And on top of that, it also means that you just don't get gas costs because you're not doing the compute on chain either. The validators don't run any compute. They just store data. Um, and that means that you can essentially do arbitrary amounts of data, data compute inside a smart contract system, which I don't think any other smart contracting network can really offer you. So these are pretty cool abilities. And presumably more, uh, presumably more performant, right, as well? Right. I mean, yes, essentially, you have this situation where you can write as many of these super complex compute operations into the network as you want at once, because it just makes no difference to the validators. The miners just don't care. Um, it's a completely different protocol in some sense than Arweave Core. Actually, we could create, yeah, we created SmartWeave without making a single modification to the Arweave protocol. Just when you have permanent information storage, it turns out you can get all of this stuff for free on top. So this sounds deliberately generalizable. Um, you were talking about the use cases and this kind of role as a founder now, this evolved role as a founder to steward the network, to invest capital, to accelerate particular kinds of adoption or, or traction. So where are you seeing, what use case, what are the first use cases that you're seeing on the network? And, you know, directionally, where are you deploying capital to encourage adoption where it's, you know, not yet at the scale that you'd like? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I mean, once once you have this smart weave layer, very quickly people built um, profit sharing communities on top. And, and that's where we were deploying most of our capital right now, because we realized it's just an unbelievable opportunity. I mean, yeah, and we can take an example of that. Uh, and I also, for what it's worth, think that like there's a signifier, a very strong signifier of growth and interest in the ecosystem in the fact that like we've deployed, I think, 150 to 200K in the profit sharing community ecosystem. And the market at large has deployed like $1.2 million into it. So it's not like we are <laughs> bankrolling the development of this ecosystem at all. Quite the opposite, actually. Um, we're just the minority partner in all of these rounds. But one of these rounds that closed, I think, 250 or 300K recently um, is Gitopia. In Gitopia, and we can take it versus GitHub, right? So when you start using GitHub, 
you make a private organization, you get kind of glued into the GitHub ecosystem. It becomes very difficult to leave. Um, and you're paying for the privilege of doing so. And then GitHub might come around one day and just turn off access to your repository. Uh, and if you stop paying them, for sure, they absolutely will. And it can be acquired and its terms of service can change and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Suddenly, your open source software project is, is hosted on something or it's basically run from something owned by now Microsoft, which you know five years ago would have been inconceivable. But that's the reality of Web2 startups. Take that relative to Gitopia, right? So Gitopia is a permanent system for running Git repositories. You, you can use it pretty much like GitHub. It has a whole bunch of other um, features on top, like uh, decentralized autonomous organizations running the code repo. So, you know, voting to accept PRs and all the rest of it. Um, but on top of that, you have this guarantee that the UI is never going to be taken away from you. The protocol is never going to be taken away from you. You can always use it in its current state or better. Um, and on top of that, instead of being glued into the system while you're paying to use it, you actually get paid in ownership of the protocol and of the profit sharing community itself by using it. So you become, uh, yeah, you're both incentivized, but also rewarded for being a, um, an early adopter of this system. And that entitles you to governance rights and also profit sharing rights. So when other people use it in the future, you get a small slice of those profits as well. So this is like a fundamentally different deal from the user's perspective than something you would get with a Web2 startup. And I think when you like line those two up side by side, GitHub versus Gitopia, uh, and it's a new market, say, um, and if people are actually, you know, if the mainstream were to understand what these things were, and I think that's what we're moving towards, I just don't think the Web2 startup can, can compete. It's like, oh, so you're going to exploit me for the, for the gain of these shareholders, the sort of these distant, lofty people that have nothing to do with me or my life. You're going to exploit me for their gain, or I'm going to become the, um, the stakeholder in this thing that we're using together. And I'm going to get to have governance say, I'm also going to be rewarded for taking part. It's like, which would you choose? Oh, and you know, the, the second one in, that guarantees you access to the service in its current form or better forever versus the first one where all of that can be taken away at will. Like it's just, yeah. I think when we get into it, it's going to be it's going to be tough for the Web two world to compete with that. Yeah, and it's exciting. And I also think you know, I mean, it reminds me. I'm trying to recall the conversation. It reminds me of a conversation I had. I think it was Definity, but a, a different approach to you know smart contracting, but also looking at um, these. Uh, there was a particular term I think that they used to. to what you would call one of these new organizations that's you know, a DAP that's an organization. Um, and I think, you know, rather than everybody kind of religiously sticking to a single approach to how we might realize Web3, I think it's really exciting that, you know, that there are these alternative approaches. And to be honest, at first glance, I hadn't fully appreciated that um, about you guys. I looked at it much more in just the context of data rather than uh, applications themselves, so kind of un unstoppable applications. Um, maybe just close off, I'm conscious of your time. Um, I know recently uh, there was uh, a collaboration or integration with Polkadot, a collaboration with Parity Tech. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, for sure. So people have been starting to use Arweave. I mean, we, we spoke about in the beginning the fact that blockchains are essentially these ever-growing ledgers that don't have incentives for people to store them. 
Well, people kind of notice that, say, in the last three or four months, and that you can apply the, the storage endowment of Arweave actually to any blockchain just by basically storing it inside. Um, yeah, so this started with, I think it was Algorand, or was it? Sorry, not Algorand. Uh, Solana and then Scale very rapidly afterwards. Maybe it was the other way around. Scale and then Solana both realized this and were very excited to just basically start dumping their chain data onto Awi. Um, so there were a bridge, we're calling an archiving bridge, was built um, to allow, yeah, to allow that to happen with, with those two chains. And then uh, now Polkadot as well. And I, I can say uh, in the background, what's happened since the, um, the launch of this joint grant with Polkadot to build the archiving bridge is that a team was formed and they've already uh, integrated all of the work from um, the previous archival bridges into what they're building now as a, its own profit sharing community. The idea is people will stake the tokens in this community um, to run archiving nodes, and then they'll be rewarded with tokens as people top up to store certain chains. And so then there's like this elegant incentivization and verification method for getting all of this chain data into Arweave uh, in a unified format. And so what they build on top of this as a demo is a totally decentralized, um, yeah, permanent and multi-chain block explorer, which is really cool. Like you can now explore around, I, I won't ruin the surprise, but let's say a whole bunch of the, um, the major blockchains in the world. You can explore all of the uh, blocks, transactions, events, and basically everything um, from this one UI that they built, uh, which is completely decentralized and permanent. It's pretty cool stuff. Um, yeah, I think it doesn't stop with the parity and, and polka dot work. I think that's just the beginning, actually. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, Sam, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure uh, to talk to you. I'm, as I said, really excited about the approach. Um, looking forward to seeing what Koi do with you guys. Um, people should check them out if they want to see uh, an implementation of what's possible on Arweave. And um, I wish you all the luck in 2021. Thanks so much. It was, it was great chatting to you. And yeah, you should definitely check out uh, Koi. It's super cool. <laughs> we didn't get time to go into it here, but it's essentially like a profit sharing community around attention and uh, data mining. It's very interesting. Look at that. You even got a plug in. You saved me having to do it. So thank, thanks for that. They'll be, they'll be chuffed. Great. Thanks, Sam. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.